Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. Now, despite a lot of talk about breastfeeding in our culture, very little discussion happens about the various ways that lactation and the provision of breast milk is shared amongst nursing parents. We often think about lactation between one mother and one child, and yet that's not how it presents for all families or for all children. From allomaternal nursing to breast milk banks, the world of cooperative lactation is diverse and it reflects the needs of various communities and families, but, as probably is not too surprising, many barriers remain. Now this week, I had the utmost joy in talking about this with Dr. Anjali Palmquist, someone who I personally have admired for a very long time. I was so thrilled to be able to talk to her, and I don't doubt that you will join me in this assessment of her work and her by the end of this interview. So without further ado, let's talk cooperative lactation. I am so excited to have with me today Dr. Anshley Palmquist. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Maternal and Child Health at the UNC Gillings School of Global Public Health and an affiliate of the Carolina Global Breastfeeding Institute. She's a medical anthropologist and an international board-certified lactation consultant. Dr. Palmquist's research addresses the intersectionality of perinatal, maternal, newborn, and young child health disparities globally and in the U.S. with a special emphasis on breastfeeding. Thank you so much for being here today with me. Thank you so much for having me. So before we get into some of your research that I'm quite excited about, about kind of allo-maternal nursing, um, I want to ask, what brought you into this field? How did you end up looking at health disparities and then specifically into breastfeeding there? I have always been interested in health disparities, um, and that comes from my training in medical anthropology, which um, really looks at the way I describe it to students is often it is um, a way of understanding how social systems, social and cultural systems shape human biology. That's how I was trained in medical anthropology. And so I came to the field with a desire to understand both social inequality and how social inequality leads to health inequities and differential um, patterns of health and well-being and populations that are often, you know, they're, they often um, are mapped across lines of race and ethnicity and income and geography and all of those things. Um, so I, I was trained to basically use the tools of anthropology to answer these questions about how do political economy, uh, his, historical factors, racism, um, and other structural inequities lead to population differences in health and sort of understanding, really unpacking that interconnection. And then um, when I was doing my dissertation field work, it was really a, um, a study of, it was in the Republic of Palau. I was studying indigenous um, food, it, it, the use of indigenous plants in food and medicine and in a population that was um, an ethnic minority and really in the midst of this transition of globalization and understanding how they were using uh, traditional medicines and ideas around health and well-being in a new context, in a context where they're navigating hospital healthcare systems um, and, and also navigating different uh, forms of discrimination. And it was in that, that field work experience that I began to think a lot about um, early influences on child and then later adult health just by it, it sort of, it wasn't a logical, it wasn't something I had thought about a lot before, but just interviewing people about the, the foods and the medicines and how it, it, those decisions depend on um, age and life experience. And like there's certain medicines that are appropriate for children and certain foods that are appropriate for children, but um, not for adults and vice versa. And, you know, just learning a lot about those early factors. And the backdrop against that research is that in the Pacific Islands at this time was like early 2000s. There was a lot of conversation around um, why Pacific Islander populations were reporting such high rates of overweight and obesity and increasingly younger and younger. So child and adolescent overweight and obesity. Um, and, you know, my 
the the short <laughs> the short version is um a lot of it had to do with these like early exposures and i so when i finished my phd i went to do um a couple of postdoctoral fellowships and really began thinking a lot about developmental origins of health and disease. And around the time that I gave birth to my first child, um, I had to do very little about lactation and breastfeeding, um, other than what I had learned as an anthropologist and what I had learned through my field work and, you know, just, um, you know, very, very minimal, what I had read in the books and what they told me in childcare, <laughs> child um, birth preparation classes. Um, and really just became really very fascinated with um, breastfeeding and lactation in human milk as a really important predictor, a factor of, and you know, part of that experience of um, early care and early influences on health. Um, and so those two things come together in my work now because we know that there are enormous, um, and in different places, different kinds of social and political and historical factors that shape infant feeding practices and sort of the impact on those practices. And a, a really important intersection is um, related to sort of inequities and in care. Um, I also have a personal experience and I sometimes tell this story. Um, when my mother, my mother has um, a fourth grade education. She's from Thailand. She comes from a very poor family uh, in a poor area of Thailand. And she um, came to the United States to marry my father when she was 19. Um, and she didn't speak very good English. She spoke just enough. Um, but at the time I was born, my father had to go back to Thailand. And so she was living with his parents. And she told me that her experience, like she couldn't communicate with the healthcare staff very well. And after I was born, she tried to nurse me and had a really hard time, but nobody could help her because they couldn't speak her language and she couldn't really speak English well enough to explain to them that she needed help. And she describes um, just really painful engorgement, like her um, breasts were hard as rocks, you know, and she, she tells a story. She's like, I really wanted to, but they gave me an injection. I didn't even know what it was and I dried up my milk. And so for me, these kinds of, you know, this very personal story relates to a lot of the, the things that we understand now around how health care and social policies and the clinical management of lactation and all of these other things sometimes interfere with people's desire to nurse their child. So I, I think for me, it's... um you know, both intellectually really interesting, but also I, I strongly believe um, that nursing a child or providing them with, you know, human milk, one's own milk, is a fundamental right. And that regardless of what choice you make about or decision you make about how to feed your baby, that everyone who wants to do that should be fully supported um, to do that. And so, it, um, you know, those are the, the kinds of things that sort of drive my passion for this work and interest in this work. That is amazing. That is, I'm so sorry to hear that about your mom, because that is, and, you know, you like to think sometimes that maybe those stories are, are one off, but I know from speaking to so many families, even today, this is not something that has really shifted in any way, shape or form. And even when people can communicate, the support they get is often far below what's needed reach their goals. And I think that's the most important part here is that we're not talking about forcing people to do something against their will. It's talking about supporting people to do things that they have a desire to do. And we need to be aware of that. So, and I think this really segues into the question about some of this work that you do, because you focus a lot on cooperative lactation and milk sharing in some of your work, both historically, cross-culturally, and currently in Western culture. And I know for a lot of people, they don't think about this in the broader scheme. When they think about milk sharing, they might either think just of milk banks, they might just think about expressing and those stories you hear about, you know, mailing your milk to someone you don't know, and, and not that I mean, which can be fine. But you know, the sometimes the mainstream media might portray it a little differently. And yet there's so much more to it than just that. So just to educate people at the beginning, can you talk about the various ways in which cooperative lactation has happened? 
both throughout history and what might be happening around the world today in different ways? I know that's a lot, but <laughs> I think people need to know that there is more than just what they have their preconceived notion of what it is. Sure. Yeah. So I think that we, um, you know, in this field of anthropology, when we're thinking about the evolution of infant feeding, it's safe to say, even though we don't have like a video camera back to the past or evolutionary past, that um, humans were probably always taking care of. We know that we, we there's something called cooperative child rearing or cooperative breeding um, that and we humans sort of fall into this category of um, species that we rely on each other for health during pregnancy, support during birth, and support for care. Um, and that's been very well established um, in the literature and places all around the world. So I think that ever since we were human, I mean, we are mammals, right? So one of the, um, it's a defining characteristic, making milk is a defining characteristic of humans. And it is also one of the most ancient things. So I think it's not much of a stretch to say that part of the ways that we cooperatively take care of our, you know, very needy, time intensive um, young infants to help keep them alive and survive is that we also shared um, breastfeeding. And that has been documented in many different societies um, in the recent past and present. Um, through a you know a diverse, a, you know, in diverse cultural systems around childcare, so um, there's a great paper called Allo Maternal Nursing in Humans, um, written by two biological anthropologists, uh, Barry Hewlett and Steve Wynn, and they sort of mapped out this, um, you know, just very basic. I, I, I love that paper. They um, just really description of, well, no, <laughs> why hasn't anybody written anything about this before? And let's like look, let's look at what's available in the ethnographic record. Let's look, let's talk to some biological anthropologists who are doing some work around um, infant nutrition and just sort of like see, because nobody, I mean, this is in 2014, I think is when their paper was published. It's like, oh, we don't have any description of this in the literature. Astounding to me. So <laughs> but, um, it's a very, so it's part of our, it's part of like the, the behavioral, you know, cultural practices that humans have always had to help um, you know, nurture each other and care for um, mothers. And it, there are lots of different arrangements. Um, typically, what what has been documented is that it is a, a grandmother who is part of the um, the village. You know, the, the social network that's helping to take care of children, who will nurse the grandchild um, in the absence of the mother. So, if mothers have to go and gather, or farm, or go fetch water, or just travel, um, there, there will be someone else, but commonly it's a grandmother. Um, and also commonly it's, you know, someone trusted within the family network. So a sister, an auntie, or a very close, um, you know, someone in the close kin or social network. And we see this, whether there are, you know, in all different kinds of societies, hunter-gatherer, pastoralist, you know, um, people who are living in more developed kinds of societies, this is a common kind of practice. And then what we also see is um, in contemporary human populations, um, different cultural ideas about its acceptability, you know, when it is appropriate, when it's not, when does it happen, um, and under what circumstances. And in some places, uh, anthropologists have determined that it's exceptional. You know, these are pretty exceptional circumstances. It's usually like early in life. Um, there's a, a lot of uh, there's a lot written about those first days postpartum while um, a, a birthing parent's milk is coming in where someone else within that trusted network will nurse the baby. So <laughs> the milk supply comes in. So there's, you know, lots of different kinds of arrangements. So it's not this idea of someone who didn't give birth to an infant providing milk through nursing them is a, is not anything that's new. What is sort of interesting, I mean, to me as an anthropologist, is that we do have all of these different belief systems and practices and sort of ideas around um, what it could look like and when it's appropriate or when it's not. Um, that's really fascinating. Um, and then t in today's world, why I'm so interested and others um, who study human milk sharing and human milk exchange are so interested in it, um, is we have these 
new technologies that really efficiently extract milk from the body. And then that, that milk can, you could do lots of things with it, right? So in humans, um, we, we come up with all kinds of <laughs> interesting um, things to do when we, we, we have a substance um, that can be shared and it can move through the world in lots of different ways. Um, and I'm happy to talk more about that, but it's sort of like we, we are now in a really interesting um, time where there's a lot of technology. We connect and create communities um, in different ways, often now with social media and online communities. Um, we seek information in different ways. So what, what human milk sh sharing looks like today in many ways, we have all of those more ancient practices, but then we have these like new permutations. Um, and really what I'm interested in is really how, um, how people are using expressed human milk and also sharing, um, you know, nursing um, care practices for, you know, for different purposes and different reasons, um, but really to help. I mean, it's really about infant care and infant nutrition and health and and those kinds of things. And I've sort of glossed over all of the other <laughs> the other things in between, which are, um, you know, commodified um, wet nursing and sort of like social stratification and the um, institutionalization of um, people who lactate and extracting their milk or having them nurse um, someone else's baby for um, you know, for profit or because they were in the, in the context of chattel slavery because they were enslaved and forced to do so. Um, so we see lots of different all around the world um, when we begin to have more stratification of societies as they become larger, more sedentary, more industrialized. Um, you have these class differences, differences in wealth, and we begin to see um, sort of more exploitive um, kinds of practices. So they they coexist, right? These more cooperative um, shared practices around um, caregiving within, you know, strong like um, natal family networks. And then these more expansive practices that have a lot more to do with um, capitalism and exploitation of people and their bodies and um, so on and so forth. That is, you know, you've kind of, when you brought back up that stuff about the grandparents kind of allo maternal nursing there. I had just recently shared an image on that on social media that had some examples of it talking about how historical this is. This is nothing new. And I was shocked at some of the responses. I think I felt that maybe I'm, you know, my privilege of the group that I kind of am part of and, and have is that there would not be this disgust that some people have surrounding this. And I want to ask just in your professional opinion and experience here, what is happening in the Western context that seems to lead to this view of cooperative lactation as being something gross is in many ways, you see there's a real stigma associated with it, especially amongst Western upper class, I'd say people. I'm not sure what's, I don't know what exactly is driving it. I just know I keep getting surprised by it because, you know, we see allomaternal nursing in other mammals as well at times. I know my daughter and I were watching a documentary about a farm where a lamb lost his mom and another lamb after a few days managed to take him on and he just started nursing and had a, you know, survived from that. So it's nothing, we're no better or different as a mammalian species, like we're different in many ways, but not in that regard. What is driving this, this fear of it, I guess, or, or what is driving the disgust of it here? Patriarchy and misogyny. And capitalism. capitalism. <laughs> That's what I want. I know it's so, yeah, I guess it just does. You always want that one simple, like, no, 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 there was this event that happened and that's it, but it's true. It is all of those. So, which kind of leads to my question then, I think because of all of those things, so many people don't view cooperative lactation as being relevant in a Western context. It is something we don't have to worry about. We don't have to think about. So even when people do accept it, there's almost an acceptance from a distance, that it's not something that they feel. How do you feel about that statement that it is? Do you agree that it's not as relevant in a Western context? Or is it equally relevant? Because we know our Western world has some of the greatest inequality around. So it feels like this should be something quite relevant going on. I mean, I guess it depends on how you are trying to define relevant. I mean, people, people do things all the time that aren't 
particularly relevant to anything. That's sort of the beauty of culture and human creativity. <laughs> um, I think fundamental to that question is really around, um, you know, thinking about it's 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 a point of view that's really hyper focused on the substance of human milk, and whether you know to what degree when milk from one person crosses these boundaries of body and um, social norms and, you know, this, this transgression of these boundaries that people set up to determine what is like safe and clean and wholesome and what is dangerous and polluting and risky, um, which is a very like Mary Douglas wrote, you know, she wrote about um, pollution and purity and, and, you know, early on in anthropology. And that's something that is really pertinent to this conversation. It's just like, how do we formulate ideas around what's acceptable and what's disgusting? Um, and it's just a very, it has to do with culture. It has to do with how we're socialized. I think the disgust for human milk sharing really comes from reducing sort of this reductionistic idea that it's about milk and, you know, this bodily fluid that may maybe contaminated. And we have like lots of history around why people, why people were told that their milk was gross or dangerous or dirty, both for their infants. That's what the formula companies love to sell early on. Um, you know, we can't measure it. We don't know what's in it. It's you know, if you have bad thoughts, you're going to have bad milk, like all of these ideas early on in, uh, in pediatrics. Um, you know, there's a lot tied up in the idea about that anyway. And then there's this idea that milk sharing is just about the milk. And I think what we have, those of us who have been actually doing, you know, thoughtful, qualitative ethnographic research around human milk sharing has discovered, it's like, it's a lot more than that. Just like everything that, that humans do when we think about it is about it's about it's about um you know connecting to others who may have understand how hard it is to be a new parent with a new baby and you're struggling and you know in many cases struggling to provide enough nutrition and nurturing for your the baby in the way that you want to and milk sharing allows people to be to form these um like postpartum care networks that they're they're providing that milk, but they're also providing that like connection, and that's a really important thing to think about. Um, I don't know if a lot of the disgust that you were getting with the the pictures of grandmothers nursing also come from this idea that like an like seeing an um an like a postmenopausal person like with a baby at the you know the breast um, conjures up these like oh that's so in that's inappropriate you know those are very Western colonialism, like Christian kinds of ideas about what is appropriate, like how we use our bodies and in what relationships. Whereas when we look more broadly and do more cross-cultural comparisons, we can see that these are like ancient caregiving practices that um, provide a lot of, again, emotional connection, um, kinship ties, all of those things. Um, so I yeah, I mean, I think a, a lot of folks who have sort of like do like science to technology studies and feminists, uh, feminist theorists who write about um, breastfeeding more broadly, um, you know, talk about this the, the, in the same way that menstruation and menstrual blood is thought to be gross and um, offensive and disgusting or dangerous. Human milk um, has, you know, we people have constructed ideas around human milk in much of those same ways. And if we look at the origins of that way of thinking about the body, it comes from a really particular way of thinking about the world, way of thinking about women's bodies, birthing bodies, you know, leaky bodies. <laughs> um, yeah. And it is, I mean, it is interesting um, in terms of like, I think the idea about relevance is like, we can, we have these substitutes like if you can't make enough milk for your own baby, you can do formula. And we have, and I think that is where maybe some of this conversation about the relevance, like if, oh, if we were just doing it to help babies survive in the past, like we don't need to do that anymore. And I think that is even, you can even contest those kinds of arguments because there are many, many situations in which um, formula feeding is deadly. <laughs> like we, we, you don't have to, you don't have to look very far in the world today to see the influence of um, formula feeding having like generating massive amounts of acute malnutrition in infants. Um, so, yeah. It's, it's funny thinking of that too, because I was thinking relevance just from your health disparities outcome is one of the things that often does come up. And with COVID, 
you've been doing a lot of work around that. And I think about health disparities with breastfeeding in emergency situations and whatnot. I mean, that's a case where I think many of us don't consider the implications of that. And yet that is one of those areas where if you have a health emergency or a natural disaster, you can't use formula safely in many cases because you don't have access to the types of things you need to be able to provide. So we have, you know, the risk of relying solely upon these other substitutes at a health level isn't really relevant for us, like is relevant for us too, to consider, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think that the other thing that the um, relevance conversation also misses is how important lactation is to reproductive health across the life course for the for people who have the capacity for birth and lactation. So the, you know, the benefits and all of the, we, science, I think it's both biomedicine and, and science, science has siloed lactation to like the nutrition field and has really, we're having to do so much work to understand that actually like that process, what happens after the baby and the placenta are delivered is lactation begins. It is the part is a necessary part of that reproductive continuum. And that when we look at the long term, about the short, like immediate um, importance and function of lactation to the person who's just given birth, and then like the life course um, impact, it's very significant. And that doesn't just go away. You can't replace that. In fact, you are, you are, taking something away from people who, um, you know, are giving birth and are lactating when you re just replace that, that process with formula. So, um, yeah, I think it's really, it, it is more, it's relevant. It's, it's so relevant in terms of its protection against invasive breast cancer and ovarian cancer, um, postpartum hemorrhage. Um, and then all of the, you know, in these situations where we have, um, increasingly climate um, climate change related emergencies and disasters where there aren't sources of clean water, for example, Flint, Michigan, <laughs> or yeah. places where, um, you know, you know, uh, hurricanes, uh, hurricane, I'm thinking about Puerto Rico, Hurricane Maria, yeah. um, you know, we, you know, we, t we kind of think about, oh, it's breastfeeding is life-saving in these humanitarian emergencies, like way you know out there in the world and very low you know resource constrained settings um but we don't have to we we don't have to look very far i mean COVID 19 is another um excellent example of that um so yeah it's it's a fundamental part of human adaptation to you know um, and i would add there's a psychological element too for those who are able to do it and enjoy want to continue i mean as someone i've been nursing for coming up on 11 years um between my two kids without stop and i'm knowing when that comes to an end there's going to be the psychological end to that too but that that has been a huge part of my life it will have been a quarter of my life when i finish and that's there is something to that even though i didn't love it all all the time and there was lots that was left to be desired but there was something to it at a personal level as well that I think we want to give people the option to be able to have should they want to do that in that sense as well. It's it's relevant for me just for my own personal being and desires in life. So uh, you mentioned the cross-cultural views on strategies. Can we talk about a few of them? And one of the things you wrote on your paper, a discussion of the biocultural dimensions of cooperative lactation strategies. What are those? What are we talking about with that? So a biocultural perspective is really an ecological perspective. It's looking at human and environment, broadly construed environment, broadly construed interactions. Um, and I, th I, I think it, you can look at <laughs> In an ecological sense, sort of energy in and energy out, sort of how how people are extracting energy from you know for food and the environment. How much energy do they spend when they're um, doing different activities in their daily lives, making food, you know, ch childcare, all of those things. Um, 
so you know, bio, a biocultural process is really sort of thinking in um, historical and but also evolutionary perspective about the interaction of humans in their environments. Um, where you're talking about lactation, the an example of how a biocultural process might work is um, if someone is at home, a woman is at home nursing her baby, and her partner finds it disgusting, she may decide to not nurse her child in the presence of her partner and give formula during that time. And that decision, those behaviors have like a direct impact on lactation physiology because you're not, um, you're not nursing as frequently, you're not sort of extracting as much milk, there's downregulation of lactation. And so in a very real sense, lactation is one of these interesting um, physiological processes that's really responsive to both behaviors and environments. Um, another example is exposure to an, a novel infectious disease um, mm -hmm. and sort of how, the, you know, a, um, a, a, a woman's body will start to make, um, you know, antibodies and, and 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 that will be transferred passively through to her infant through um through milk and through nursing so that's what we kind of talk about when we talk about like the biocultural dimensions of lactation and then i think when you talk about cooperative lactation there's there is so much we don't know because nobody has ever <laughs> applied a really sophisticated sort of, um, you know, mixed methods biocultural study to really understand what does it mean for a grandmother to relactate and to nurse her grandchild? What is, what is it doing? What is, what is the physiological impact on both or, you know, everybody who's involved in that kind of exchange? The closest we, the closest we have gotten to that are science, uh, scientific studies that really look at um, pasteurized donor human milk being fed to infants in the neonatal intensive care unit, neonatal intensive care unit, but we understand very little about the impact of um, milk sharing on the health of infants, you know, with a real biocultural kind of perspective. We, we understand like the, we understand a lot about the cultural and sociocultural context, but we don't really understand how it's impacting immunity and how it's impacting growth and development. I mean, those are all super fascinating questions um, that I hope someday, I, I guess thinking about my contribution to the field of anthropology and the field of lactation, I hope someday it will have reopened like the door to all of these fascinating questions that I hope researchers will study someday. I'm too old <laughs> to start studying all these things now, but um I just, it's, yeah, yeah, fascinating. Well, and one of the things that struck me in, in your paper that I read that I had not even pondered, but was the struggle for many Muslim communities to use pasteurized donor milk because of the kinship idea about when you nurse from someone else, there's a, a bond there. And these kind of barriers are things I don't think I ever would have thought of without going into that. And I, I feel like that's something that we all need to be aware of. And so when I think about, you know, you argued that cooperative lactation is, I think you said, a vital strategy for infant health around the world. And yet there's so many barriers and they're so cross-cultural that it's not, you know, we think about human milk banks and that seems like such an easy solution. And then you look over at, this group of those who believe that it's a kinship bond, well, that can't work because now you have a kinship bond to people you don't know, and not only one person, but a multitude since the milk is often pooled. Um, how, like w outside of that, I mean, but what are some of these key barriers that cross cultures, both for us, but also that we might not think about for some other cultures in terms of making cooperative lactation strategies more relevant for these different communities. The interesting thing about the milk kinship and milk banking is that in some places where they have a majority of Muslim families that they are serving, they've come up with solutions. Really? And uh, uh, yeah, yes. So one of the things <laughs> they do um, is they, they actually basically facilitate a milk sharing relationship between a known donor and a known family. So it's not an, you know, it's not milk that they're receiving from a bank actually. Um, and in many cases, when the, 
the person who's donating their milk to a, a baby in that context, which is usually like in the immediate postpartum period, you know, it's facilitated by hospital staff. They may not have to pasteurize the milk because the donors screened, serologically screened, and they um, express milk under really stringent um, you know, conditions, hygienic conditions. Um, and so they have been able to just adapt the, the milk kinship or the milk banking model to accommodate these different cultural concerns and considerations. Um, I think that <laughs> milk banking <laughs> around the world, um, you know, it, looks different in lots of different places and it's except you know has different kinds of acceptability and different kinds of barriers and they all have to do with cultural ideas um about the acceptance of receiving milk from someone that they don't know or that they didn't you know from a, a person that didn't give birth to the baby um but there are also structural and political economic um circumstances as well but i think in like sharing breastfeeding like what cooperatively sharing breastfeeding or expressed milk is not something that's unique. I mean, it's still, it's relevant to all the people around the world who still practice it. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just always, we may think it's fringe or exceptional because we just don't see it, but a lot of people do and they don't talk about it. They're not on Facebook. It's just part of their, I can't, I was, I had a conversation with um, some students the other day about this. When I was doing my milk sharing research, I would just sometimes pe I would be traveling a lot and people would ask me like, well, what are you doing? And even when I was doing my clinical placement for to become a lactation consultant, um, you know, I was a student, but I was interested in milk sharing as a research. And people were just like random people will tell me a story, someone they know, someone in their family, some them, you know, I was you know, I when I was little, my mom had to go to the hospital and like some lady down the road breastfed me for three weeks. <laughs> there are, people have all, all these stories. Like it's a very common thing that just people don't think to talk about or they don't talk about it or yeah. they might feel stigma. Um, so I would, I would argue that it's actually very relevant for a lot of people around the world. Um, it's not as, you know, formally institutionalized in the same ways that milk banking um, is, or is, you know, sort of, becoming more um you know spread around the world but um i don't did you you were asking me something else yeah. about cross-cultural practices um i think in the united states we see um lots of different barriers in access to pasteurized donor human milk in hospitals and that some of that has to do um with the way the system is set up and who the system was designed to serve. Um, and a lot of the barriers, um, for example, for Black and African-American and Native American, um, non-English speaking immigrant populations, Latinx populations who have, you know, who may meet the medical criteria for um, being prioritized for using donor human milk, don't receive it or don't accept it. And we don't fully understand all of the the uh, cultural factors around that. But certainly we do understand that structural racism in the same way that it creates barriers to um, people being able to nurse their baby if that is their decision to do so, um, affect you know, all of these things around acceptance of and acceptability of and access to um, donor human milk as well. Yeah. It reminds me of the conversation I had with Lindsay Hookway, who is researching the barriers to breastfeeding in acute, critically, or, you know, um, longer term illness with kids. Because, you know, one thing I hadn't even thought of that she pointed out is as soon as you're out of the maternal neonatal ward and you're in pediatrics, lactation is just not even a thing. There's no support. There's no one there. And you get families in and it may be that they've only been home for a few days and have to come back in. But suddenly, they're now in a different area. And that is treated wholly differently. And these are kids that from a health perspective, you would hope would have access to human milk because mm -hmm. of some of the known benefits there. But it seems like it just is pervasive systemically in the healthcare system is that there's just not a lot that's, and of course there are other cultural issues, but just 
fixing the system, well, fixing all systems, I guess, is really the answer to everything. Just, yeah, <laughs> I mean, well, you can take a look at um, Brazil is often used as this example of, of just this pro the system of human milking that's just prolific. It is, um, they have the most. They have like two, over 200 milk banks and they have, um, you know, people can, they have like these um, couriers that go and pick up milk at homes and take them to the hospitals and everybody has access. It's not prioritized in um, the same way because they have such a robust supply. Um, and so I think, you know, that is when it, you could actually do a really interesting and there is a good literature now. We start, we're starting, we, there are enough milk banks around the world now that we are starting to see in the literature sort of comparisons around acceptability and appropriateness and um, some of the, you know, more sociocultural um, challenges with, or, you know, and innovations in human milk systems. So that's sort of an interesting cross-cultural comparison. Um, but I think, you know, I think, the milk banking system in the United States, um, because it is so strongly integrated into the hospital system and beyond that, the neonatal critical care system, um, it has created these additional challenges um, with with regard to access and that are there are structural challenges and you know go yeah. So I want to go back to the peer-to-peer -peer milk sharing because you shared, you know, that many people do it more than we probably think or are aware. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's funny because when you were saying it, I have to admit, I was like, oh, yeah, I really wish I'd been able to do it. Then I was like, oh, I did. And it just was <laughs> such a moment of like, wait, I totally forgot. Because, and I think it was because it wasn't for, it was for a friend of a friend who was coming to visit. And my daughter has a dairy allergy. So I was completely dairy free. And she had a struggle with supply, but her baby couldn't have dairy. And so I pumped for a while to provide for her. I'm an abysmal pumper, so I didn't get to provide as much as I would have liked. But um, I did it. But it was <laughs> it was that weird kind of moment of like, oh, wait, yeah, I did that for like the summer while she was there. That's my, yeah. that's my one milk sharing story that I would have told everyone up to this moment. Oh, no, I never <laughs> did that. So it, it is clearly more common than probably, especially if you have a memory like mine. Um, but one of the things that comes up in the research, not in the research, pardon me, but in the mainstream kind of narrative is, and I remember seeing newspaper articles about it, is how dangerous peer-to-peer -peer sharing is. That these, And it drives me nuts. But you have done research on this and you have written on the actual safety of peer-to-peer -peer as far as you could tell with what you were looking at. Can you elaborate on what those findings are? How safe is it to share milk via things like the Human Milk for Human Babies Network or however else it's done for people or from random people like me who won't remember that they did it, you know, <laughs> 10 years later? So there are, there are um, known risks to sharing human milk. And these are very much the same risks that a person who is thinking about nursing their baby would have to grapple with. Do I have a, an infectious disease that I might transmit to my baby? Am I taking medications that might be dangerous if they enter the milk and are transferred to my baby? Have I pumped, if I'm going to feed expressed milk, have I expressed that milk in a hygienic um, environment using precautions to ensure that I'm not contaminating it with a dirty pump or a dirty container. Um, when I feed my baby that milk, is it a safe and hygienic environment? Um, and so those are like, those are sort of like these very, we know that there are risks associated with that. And if you don't know where your milk is coming from, it's impossible to assess what those risks are and to put into place mitigation strategies. What is great about milk sharing um, is that that you can you can actually mitigate all of those risks through serological testing, through knowing your donor's health and health background, knowing their diet and their behavior. Um, a lot of I think a lot of the the, the conversation around the safety of um, milk sharing also is related to substance you know substance use during lactation and how safe that milk will be. Um, but I think it's 
in the same ways that human milk banks screen donors for substance use and related issues, which is basically a behavioral questionnaire, people who are sharing milk can also like ask those questions. And so it, it really does come down to communication, knowing what the risks are, getting the information that you need to mitigate the risks using, you know, the available tools and science. Um, and then just being, you know, very careful. And what we have found in our research, and not just my research, there are other anthropologists in the United States and in other countries who have looked at this, um, that people who are both giving and receiving milk um, tend to put into place really thoughtful screening practices, both donors and recipients. Um, what the ones, one of the studies that was is used commonly to support the idea that it is very horrific, terrible, dangerous, don't ever do it, you're a bad parent if you do it, comes from a pediatric study that basically um, designed a study to purchase milk anonymously online and then analyze that milk in a lab to determine how much bacteria, you know, pathogenic bacteria had grown um, and other sources of contamination, whether the milk had been um, tampered with, so whether formula had been added to sort of increase the volume, um, which, you know, is a risk, particularly if you're in a buying and selling, you know, if you're paying for milk by volume, you know, that's an, that would make be a reasonable risk. Um, and so when they, yeah, they, they bought all this milk anonymously, um, excluded any sellers who were trying to screen them and, you know, had the milk shipped to a PO box and then took it to the lab and Unsurprisingly, there's a lot of dirty milk that should never be fed to anybody. Um, that some of it had evidence of um, being tampered with. Um, we did a similar kind of study, but we actually collected milk that, in a way that reflects really how people are sharing peer in, in peer-to-peer networks. So this is with um, Marianne Perrin at NCSU. Um, she's at UNCG now, and we basically. I had done all this qualitative research, this ethnographic research to understand like what does milk sharing look like in the lives of people who are doing it. Um, and there's lots of cross nursing, there's lots of um, different kinds of arrangements. So knowing that context, we said, okay, we're gonna basically find donors and recipients. And I would like visit the recipient's home and they would open their freezer. And if they had milk that they were willing to donate to the study, they might give me a bag and it maybe had milk from four or five different donors in it. And we put it in a cooler, took it to the lab and analyzed that. And we compared that milk, you know, and people who are donating. So they would give us a little bit of their stash from the, the milk that they're pumping to give away. And then we had a group of people who were just um, expressing milk for their own baby. So like, you know, just, they were feeding their baby their own express milk. So we had like captured sort of samples of <laughs> mother's own milk. And then we also compared it to samples of milk that were donated to a milk bank, but in the, before it was pasteurized. So we, I think we had a number of different milk banks give us a sample of pre-pasteurized, like raw milk that had been just donated. And with milk banks, you know, they give you a protocol to follow for expressing your milk to ensure that it's um, hygienic when you send it to them. And we, you know, ran microbial analyses. We also did additional um, analyses of bioactives um, and then any, you know, evidence of um, tampering and contamination. And we didn't find any significant differences um, between any of um, the milk that we had collected in these various forms. It's a small, it's a pilot study, a small study, but it's it's no less robust than the study that was published <laughs> where you took, you know, buy milk off the internet anonymously and it's very bad milk. So the takeaway is please don't ever buy milk from someone you don't know online and feed it to your baby, which I, I find it hard to believe that most parents would be doing that. Although I, I'm, I'm sure it has it's happened. happened. Um, yeah. And just really like the, anything that you can do best case scenario, in my opinion, is talk to a healthcare provider and I'll tell you why it's the best case scenario and how, you know, and, and understand what the risks are and see if they can facilitate some kinds of serological testing or screening support for you to use. A lot of people who have, um, you know, are lactating have recently given birth. They have like very robust like medical records. So you can, um, you know, depending on the time frame, most people are sharing these things anyway, when they're doing these like human milk from human milk for human babies kinds of exchanges. 
um, or even within their own communities. But um, yeah, I mean, I think not all healthcare providers are going to be comfortable in that role. Um, we do have some examples. There's a Mother's Milk Alliance in um, Madison, Wisconsin. There's Get Pumped in Florida. Um, there are many, there's um, Uzazi Village, I think, has um, a, a, a program where they connect basically people who are within their practice, right? They're in, within, in their doula and midwifery and lactation practice. They have in-house screening so that they can provide with consent, you know, information about the serological testing and, you know, help people form trusting relationships. So people still aren't all on board, even with all of those, um, those considerations. But I, I guess like with everything else that is public health related, and when you're talking about these risks, like harm reduction is, you know, kind of, I think it has to be, because people will do things whether or not the healthcare providers or public health or the FDA or whoever says it's like bad. I mean, some people will stay away from it because those mm -hmm. institutions say that it's bad. However, people... Well, they have always been doing it. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, they will. I have a question. Do you have in your work or know of any kind of online outline screening thing that people could go to if they were looking at peer to peer sharing? Because I think it is, as you said, that screening is such an important first step. And, you know, it would be so nice if there's, hey, go here and download this. And this has all your questions that you need to know how to screen potential yeah. donors. So I think there are, there's a um, perinatal um, services in British Columbia had a toolkit that they provide. It's really nice. Canadians do things better than we do. <laughs> um, Thank you. I mean, it's, a, it's many years old um, and they, like they were sort of forward thinking. They put together some resources. I, and I think both human milk for human babies and eats on feats, which are sort of larger communities that are really active on social media um, do also have resources and um, tools uh, related to that. Um, I think, you know, kind of looking at what we what we found is people are commonly screening for, um, you know, HIV tests, um, any other, you know, serological screening, they ask about medications, they ask about food, and then they ask about things that are like important to them. So some people asked their donors about are you eating dairy or not? Or, you know, things um, of that nature. So I think sometimes people are, they screen for the things that are commonly considered like public health. Of course, you can't screen for bacterial contamination. So you might ask questions about, well, what is your pumping regimen? Or can you, you know, show me? And then they'll do the the sniff and taste test of the milk before they feed it to their baby. Um, so I, I, I think a lot of people are like, kind of like, if they're feeding this milk to their own child. It's probably um, okay. That's you know, again, that's those are practices that public health would be. But I, you know, we could give people more support to do it yeah. even more safely. Is the thing. So you yeah. can tell people not to, but um, most of the time, people are sharing with a, a family member, a very close friend, someone in like their local community parenting group, um, someone that they met through a lactation consultant or a healthcare provider. Um, at least, according to our ethnographic, like what we know about the ethnographic, there are there are other folks who are out there in the world selling and buying milk on, um, you know, other kinds of websites, and and usually not for purposes of infant feeding, um, but. You know that I think what's really interesting with COVID nineteen is we have seen increased interest in human milk um, exchange for because of because when somebody has had when a, a person who's lactating has had COVID nineteen they they begin to produce antibodies um, and so I think we don't really know what the impact of that is on the buying like the market the buying and selling of um, human milk, but certainly it's piqued people's interest in sharing and they're using that as a way to say like, I have this milk, my baby's not using it. I had COVID-19. <laughs> um, I don't know how, how, I don't know if there are folks out there trying to make a profit of that or not, but that's an, um, that's, we, we sort of have a survey out to ask, to get a handle on some of those questions, but um, yeah, it's a really interesting time to kind of be looking at what's happening with peer-to-peer -peer milk sharing and buying and selling milk.
Well, you actually just segued into the next question I wanted to ask, which was all about the money, um, <laughs> if we have time to get to it. But it does seem, I mean, there's so much about the money because you brought up the commercialization of milk and whatnot. What I was thinking of first and foremost was this paying for breast milk, just even on a one-to-one, whether it's a person selling to a company or selling to someone else. And the repercussions of that, because there's, you know, you see both sides of the argument. One, which is that this is a mother's or a person's time, effort, there may be an expense with it. Um, there's, you know, that is the stuff that can go on. So is that going to be, is, is that worthwhile to compensate them for that time? But then we look historically everything and just even logically when we're paying for breast milk, what does that do when we have such inequality already? How does that affect if a mother is able to sell her milk? As an example, what, how much of that milk goes to her own baby versus selling it for the money she needs for other things? And how does that play into everything? So what, what is your take on the issue of payments for breastfeeding? Or breast milk, I guess. (laughs) I'll take a very neutral, um, perspective on it and say that it, it like, at, like what we know from talking to people who share milk, who buy and sell milk, who um, have started companies that are found, you know, based on human milk. Um, there are a lot of really interesting conversations, ethical conversations about w- whether it's appropriate or not and what it means. Um, and those conversations, I think, are really interesting. I think we can learn a lot about um, the ways people view the value of milk from those conversations. We can learn about what 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 are sort of the ethical considerations. Um, some ethical considerations are more important to some communities than others. Um, I will say that the caution, and if people are, you know, many of us who have conversations about this. Um, where we are cautious is with concern is just about the concern of exploitation. And that is a common concern that we see no matter how you look at the commodification of bodies or gametes um, or blood um, historically or in the present day, that there are some, when you, with the, when something, when capitalism enters the picture, there is a, a very, um, like the the opportunities to exploit people are just in really really high, um, and I don't want to say like vulnerable people. I just I mean the exploitation of people for profit is um, what a lot of people are concerned about when we when people who are concerned about buying and selling milk in various forms, whether it's between individuals or commercially. Um, and so, because I think in many cases, people wouldn't, what we know about how um, families value human milk, especially if, like if there are people who engage, who donate to milk banks or who um, engage in peer-to-peer sharing, they place a really high value on not just the substance of the milk and the time and the energy it takes to express the milk and everything, you know, they, it is, it has um, intangible meaning and value. Um, and I think... I can't say this for certain, but I think for many people, they wouldn't necessarily be in a position where they want to sell it for money unless they were, they needed the money. (laughs) And I would say that for almost any type of commodification, whether it's surrogacy, um, sex work, um, you know, many, many different, different kinds of institutions um, and practices that when we see the overrepresentation of um, people of color, low-income people, people who don't have access to any other social resources and political support, et cetera, um, who their only option to survive in the world is to commodify their body or parts of themselves. Um, there's often, you know, that, that, that other side that you have to look at, which is the side of exploitation. Um, there, the Human Milk Banking Association of North America is very, very um, dedicated and committed to offering human milk that is pasteurized, that is safe to the most needy, medically fragile infants in um, 
neonatal critical care settings um, in a nonprofit model. And I think that is um, due to historically sort of the exploitation of um, women and lactating people, um, you know, historically in our country. Um, and also it creates more uh, theoretically more equity and access to that milk if, you know, really having the burden of providing, you know, compensated for the cost be um, covered by insurance companies and hospitals and sort of institutions that want to use this milk as therapy, you know, as um, a therapeutic intervention. Um, because when you start to put a price on it, then you start to get into um, in stratification of access. And that is what we see with the, there are, there are human for-profit human milk banks in the United States that operate as well. And NICUs and hospitals have to pay a lot more money and, and parents, patients, if they have to pay for it themselves have to pay a lot more out of pocket to have access to this um, milk. And um, increasingly, like there's all kinds of, we could, we could have another conversation about like all of the innovation, quote unquote, innovation and biotechnology, lactoengineering, or as one of my colleagues calls it, Franken-milk. <laughs> um, different kinds of products that are being, you know, marketed to um, people that are based on human milk. But so can I yeah. take you up on that to have you come on to talk about that? Because yeah, I would love to. I'm also still just in shock that you have for-profit milk banks, because as far as I know, yeah. we don't have them here in Canada. I don't think... We, I'm kind of horrified at the moment. I'm yeah, I think in, a, in many countries, because milk is um, regulated as a tissue, there is, um, you sort of have safeguards in place that prevent the buying and selling of milk and then the um, sort of the creation of products that are human milk based. Um, and maybe that's the case in Canada. But here, yeah, Prolacta is a very um, pro pro prominent company that, buys milk from um, people um, and compens you know, compensates them for their milk. And I think maybe provides them with a pump. I can't remember exactly. And then they have this, you know, very fancy protocol for how to pasteurize their milk. And um, they're, they're selling some other things in terms of like higher quality control, et cetera, et cetera. So they sort of carved out this niche and a lot of what we understand a lot of NICU's um, they also have like a human milk based fortifier that they've had for years, which is used to um, be um, an alternative to like a, a, a formula, a cow's milk based fortifier. All, especially if you have a baby in the NICU, preterm milk um, doesn't provide everything a baby needs when they come into the world early and too soon. Um, so it usually has to have some mineral and um, caloric fortification. So they they have had um, human milk-based fortifier on the market for a long time. Um, but now they've also started doing just pasteurized donor human milk. Um, and it's for profit. So a lot of it's being used. Um, and then there are other products that are like shelf-stable human milk. And the reasons why these things can get into NICUs and hospitals and care is that they're not regulated in the same way as medicines are. They're considered a foods. And it's also like by the, it's sort of the, um, upon the recommendation of the neonatologist or, you know, the, the physicians who are orchestrating care and make decisions about different um, NICUs in different hospitals made, you know, decide to have like a different, let's try this feeding plan for these infants. And I think for a lot of these products, we have very little evidence that comes from like randomized control trials or other kinds of observational studies that really help us understand what the impacts are on the, the health of infants. Most of the studies, if there are any scientific studies that are done, are done by the companies themselves. So they have in-house. And that's um, not a problem. No, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I think these are all really um, important questions, but I, you know, I, I I think the, the 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 issue about the buying and selling of milk, um, especially if it's individuals, um, so, you know, like whether it's through peers or deciding to sell to a company, um, you know, it's very these are individual decisions. But I think you don't have to look very far to see where that stratification, that sort of those political economic circumstances. Um, we we know that Meadowlack is a company that actually targeted um, low income low-income or African-American mothers in 
Detroit, sort of a low income part of Detroit, um, to try to recruit them to to prov provide payment for their milk so that they could, you know, sell it to the company and the company could make their um, shelf stable human milk product. Um, and that thank you to the advocacy of the Black Mothers Breastfeeding Association, Kimberly Seals Allers, Kadata Green, basically said, you're not going to come in our community and exploit us like this. And it really was, it it really, it really was an exploitation scheme. So I think, yeah, I think there are different layers and there are complexities. I know that even in my own research with peer-to-peer -peer sharing, there were a few people who were after a, a period of time decided the donor decided I'm going to ask for compensation for my time. And they had like a personal agreement with their re recipients and that worked for them. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's not common um, if we kind of look collectively at the research on this, but it, you know, it happens. And so I think I don't, I'm not going to be like one to say it's always bad or always good. It, it's just, it's complex, right? There are, yeah. Absolutely. No, I think that's the best answer though. It's true that as long as we're aware of all the issues surrounding it and why it's happening, it's not inherently bad and it's not inherently good. It's just what are the underlying motivations for it that are going on? Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. I know we're at time here and I've kept you. This is like, I could keep talking for hours about this. This is so, I'm horrified, fascinating. I do want to have this conversation about commodified milk because I think that is a really important one to come up. But in the meantime, where, what research are you doing, if you don't mind sharing for people, where they can find you to look up your work or if they want to take part in any of the research, if they're able to, how to get in touch with you? Yeah, so I am at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in the Department of Maternal and Child Health um, and the Carolina Global Breastfeeding Institute. So I think if you like type in like Palmquist and Chapel Hill, or something, you should make I'll have all these links. In it. I'll have all the links there in the uh, in the show notes, so you can find it there. Yeah, yeah, and um, we have I I have a few collaborations in um international collaborations for research that are ongoing. Um, and then I'm trying to, we, we so we have our COVID-19 and infant young child feeding survey that we just, we're starting to analyze some of the data from that now. Um, and then I'm trying to establish a new research agenda looking at lactation support for um, people who have experienced incarceration. So that if I am successful in getting funding for that, that's gonna be my new um, research project for the next foreseeable future. Wow. That will be fascinating. You'll have to come on and talk about that too. <laughs> Funding permitted. Um, thank you so much for being here and talking about thank this. You, I Tracy. so appreciate the time. This is eye-opening and enlightening, and I just can't thank you enough for this. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Sadly, that's it for this week. I hope that you all enjoyed that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Now next week we move away from breastfeeding towards a more global discussion of human evolution. I'm joined by psychologist Dr. Leslie Newson and biologist Dr. Peter Richardson, who have co-authored a book offering a new view of human evolution, one that takes us away from the male protagonist to give us a female and child-centric view. It's one that I think is long overdue, and I hope you'll agree with me. Until then, stay safe and happy parenting. <laughs>